0: Let's take our Bible, let's go to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 14 through verse 16, and uh, we came through this passage, it's been several months ago uh, in Sunday school, but uh, this is one of my favorite passages, I think, as it communicates so much rich truth as to who we are in Christ, and uh, the blessing and privilege that we have in Christ as believers, and the title of the message is The Privilege of the Believer Priest, The Privilege. Of the believer priest. And so let's read this passage together, and I pray that we can glean some things tonight that would encourage us in our our Christian walk and uh, especially our life of prayer as well. Hebrews 4, verse 14. The writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the great blessings of the Christian life is being able to study the scriptures and learn more and more about who you are in Christ. You know, the moment you get saved, you're not downloaded with all the knowledge you need. You're not downloaded with, uh, you know, everything there is to know about Jesus or uh, about the Christian life and who you are. But one of the great blessings that I found is is this particular uh, principle or really picture of the Christian life, and that is that we as believers are priests of God. And we touched on that briefly coming through Ephesians. Ephesians 2 kind of points some of that out. Um, but this is a, a wonderful thing for us to consider today. Now... One thing we hear, we hear the word priest today, and we may not probably like that. It's probably not the most appealing title. We don't have priests within our uh, Christian church or, or circles, and there's been many false things, bad things identified with uh, the title of priest. But when we look at it scripturally, believer priest is not anything like what you think of, say, a Catholic priest or a priest of some other uh, uh, religious, uh, religious group. The believer priest is a picture of the Christian life as it gives a detailed look at our blessings spiritually, our spiritual position. Now, when you think about the Old Testament for a moment, do you remember what God's people, Israel, were to be to him in the Old Testament? He said through Moses to the people in Exodus 19.6, he said, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, they were a kingdom of priests, physically, right? But a lot of what you see in the Old Testament with ancient Israel corresponds to the New Testament of people, God, in a spiritual sense, uh, a very symbolic sense. And so the physical priesthood of Old Testament Israel gives us imagery of what God's people are spiritually in the New Testament. So what does this mean for us as far as being a believer priest? Well, in short, it means this, that every believer has the same standing before God in Christ. Every believer enjoys equal access to God through Jesus Christ. Every believer has one same high priest. Every believer gets the privilege of worshiping and serving God as a believer priest. You see, no believer has better access to God than another believer. We are all Directly, priests of God with direct access to him. And that's essentially what this text brings out to us. It reveals to us that we have a direct connection to almighty God through Jesus. Now that that just staggers me just for a moment. When you consider who God is and that we have a direct line to him by means of Jesus Christ by means of who we are in Christ. Now, you think about some of the greatest uh, leaders in the world or the the uh, top-tier leaders, some of the most guarded people in the world. In order to have a connection to them, you must know them, right? Or someone close to them. Now, consider one of the most guarded men in the world, the President of the United States. Is it possible for me just to waltz into the, the Oval Office and say, Hey, I'd like to talk with you. How many of us like that privilege? We might like an opportunity to give him a little talk. First thing I would to do is give him the gospel. Just put that note in there. It's not possible for us to just get a direct line to him say, you know what, I'm going to call the president or I'm going to call one of these high, uh, high world leaders. We, we, we don't have that opportunity. Why? They're, they're restricted because of their importance, right? And, and so their safety and, and there's all sorts of things that tie into their, their safety. How much more restricted is God whose infinite holiness bars sinful man from his presence? You consider that that vast gap between God and man and the fact that no man has right in and of himself just to come to God and approach God and and, and demand anything of God or ask anything of God. And yet what we find through the scriptures and this text specifically is that the believer can approach him directly. Because he knows God personally. Well, How do we know God personally? How is it we can be close close to him? Because if we know Jesus, we know God. If we know Jesus, we know God. See, through Jesus, we can come to God. This is the wonderful privilege of the believer priest, that we can come to the throne of grace. And we do this directly through our prayer life and in our worship. And so this leads us to see how truly sacred and and, and special this privilege is, especially in the matter of prayer. So notice with me in our notes here tonight, three points I want to bring out of this text directly. And we'll look at a couple references in Hebrews. But by and large, I just want you to gather these three things that we find Uh, in the text. Number one, I want you to see the believers have access to God. And this access is, 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 is contingent on these two factors. The first factor is that we come to God only through our great high priest, only through him, only through Jesus Christ. Now, how do we learn about how important the high priest's position is? Well, we go back to the Old Testament for a moment and then look at their system of worship. Looking back at the Old Testament you'll see that there was restricted access to a specific place in the Old Testament. What was that place? That was the Holy of Holies, right? In the tabernacle and later in the temple. Now, the Holy of Holies typified or was symbolic of the presence of God, all right? And only one person had access to that place, and that was the great high priest. The great high priest. And even that great high priest could not just waltz in there whenever he felt like. He could only enter the Holy of Holies one time a year. One time a year. And he had specific requirements upon entering the Holy of Holies. He couldn't go in there uh, without having gone through God's prescribed uh, way of getting in there, and he also had to take blood in there to sprinkle on the mercy seat. So entering the Holy of Holies was a very rare and sacred privilege. Without meeting those requirements, that to enter the Holy of Holies, you understand that death was on the table for that great high priest. That's how holy this, this, this uh, practice was. But notice verse 14, what it says. The author says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this, this particular point sticks out to me. Notice those two little words. We have. We have great high priest Jesus the son of God who has entered into the heavens now this understand the author's writing to who he's writing to believers he's writing to those who are in Christ those who know him it is the believer who has Jesus as his own high priest that's think of that in a very individual manner that gives me comfort and assurance you know why because every time that i pray and i enter the throne room of grace And I get on my knees and approach God. I know that Jesus, my high priest, he intercedes for Joseph Allen. You can put your name there. You're in Christ. He intercedes for you. We have. He's ours. We have this great high priest. And he's greater than any priest that have ever gone before him. That's one of the points of Hebrews is showing the superiority of Christ. But notice that Jesus, as our high priest, he's passed into the heavens. Ponder that for a moment. Where did the earthly high priest have to go for the people? Well, into a temporary physical holy of holies in one specific location, right? But Jesus has gone into the holiest of heaven itself for us. When the high priest of the Old Testament went into the holy of holies, I mentioned a moment ago, did he go there empty-handed? No. If he went empty-handed, he's a dead man. That's what it boiled down to. He was required to take blood of a sacrifice. So that as he comes into the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that's on top, he would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat and that would be an atonement both for him and the sins of the people. And without that blood, there would, that, 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 that's what would cause death. So that was God's prescription. That was God's program in showing his holiness and what atonement does. But what we find with Jesus is that He has entered into the holiest in the heavens, having offered His own perfect blood as a final and permanent offering for our sins. Go with me to Hebrews 9 for a moment. We'll just look at a couple passages in Hebrews. won't make you go too much else. Hebrews 9, through 26. If you look at this, we read that the author, you understand that he's, he's recalling a lot of imagery and, and language that comes from the Old Testament, okay? Because that's the point. He's wanting them to see that going back to the Old Testament, that old system, it's done. Christ has fulfilled it. But notice what he says here. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, that right there's your answer. When people complain about, well, Christianity is such a bloody religion, that's a common complaint today. Well, this is God's demand. The wages of sin is death, and the life of the flesh is in the blood, and so blood is part of this atonement. But verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered Not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God, notice these three words, on our behalf. On our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's so much we could unpack there. We just don't have time to do it. Brother Bob did a great job doing that in Sunday school. So I know this is, uh, this is grounded in us well. But the reality here is that Jesus, he did what no other high priest could ever do. He offered a final and full atonement for us, and he has entered into the holy place to offer it. What a passage this is. And by him doing that, he has paved the way for his people to approach God directly. This is pictured again in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, When Jesus died on the cross, you remember this unique event that happens in Jerusalem? The Bible says that the curtain, or the veil of the temple that separated the holiest of holies from the holy place, it was torn in two. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. God did it. God did it. The earth shook and the rocks were split. So so the barrier is no more. Jesus' blood was the final atonement, giving us access by faith. And notice also that the author says, I'm just breaking down our passage here. We have a great high priest, we have him, who has passed through the heavens. He's gone beyond an earthly holy of holies into heaven itself. And he is, this high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. Now why is that important? Because Jesus was not just a man like the other earthly high priest. He was also God. Only the God-man can truly be a bridge between the Holy One and wicked men. Because there was no priest good enough to ever be that bridge or gap. No animal good enough to ever be a complete and perfect sacrifice. You see, the high priest of the Old Testament was a mortal mediator, a go-between, one who went in between the people of God and God of the people, and even he himself, he himself needed atonement. But our mediator is Christ himself, the God-man. And I love how Paul words this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Friend, that's why, Jesus, that's why Christianity is exclusive. It really is only through one person. That's why people get offended. Well, why do you think that Jesus is the only way? Because Jesus is the only way. <laughs> He's the only one. The only one that, that, that saves. The only one that is atoned. The only one who is our great high priest. And so, without this high priest, Jesus the righteous, we would never have access to the holiest. And praise God that he is our high priest. But notice with they letter B, be, the second factor here, all right, not only do we have access to God because of, of Jesus, our great high priest, so he's the only way we can come to God, but also understand we come to God because of, our, of genuine faith, genuine faith. Now, remember that Christ is high priest, he's not a high priest of everybody in this world. Not just anybody can just go to God. Who is he alone the high priest for? He is only the high priest for those who believe. He is only the high priest for his people who have faith in him alone. Now, notice what the author says. He says, because of this, because of him being our high priest, as Jesus, Son of God, what's this last statement of verse 14? Let us hold fast our confession. Some translation may render that as profession. We hear the the terminology profession of faith or confession of faith. That's that's an assertion of your own persuasion, conviction, and trust in Christ alone. That's what the word confession brings out to us. A statement of allegiance as content of an action. So, So this is a profession of faith and a commitment to Christ. Now, understand that only through faith is one directly linked to Christ, for it is only through faith that we are saved and have access to him. Romans 5.2, through him, we also have obtained access, how? By faith. By Faith. faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, until a person believes upon Jesus as Savior, they don't have access to God. Now, this this is a stickler for some people because I run into people and I talk to them and they say they're Christian and they just think everybody's part of one big family of God. Like, there's no distinction between God's people and the rest of the people in the world. Well, there is a distinction. Not just anybody can come to God and Him honor what they're coming to Him with. Now, understand God's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He hears and knows everything, right? But there's a difference in God listening to someone as His own. Now, you notice that sinners do not have access to God. Why is that? Because mankind in his natural state is at enmity with God. He's not on good terms with God. God's not on good terms with them. Sin has barred them from accessing the Holy One. You understand, even a believer, if living in sin unrepentantly, they can hinder their prayer life. Psalm sixty six eighteen, 18, David wrote, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's, a, that's something to consider. God told his people, Israel, his people, in Isaiah 59, 2, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. They had gone so far as to God's to send judgment. doesn't matter if they cry out and say, Oh, Lord, please make it stop. Judgment was coming. They needed to approach God in repentance and confession. And and so how much more restriction is upon those who are still in unbelief in Christ, dead in sin, living in perpetual hostility in their wickedness? Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of who? The righteous. He's far from the wicked. Now, this is one reason why this this modern-day evangelism of, well, you need to just say a sinner's prayer, and that's how you're going to get saved. friend. The sinner's pray is not, prayer is not in the Bible. It's just not there. You understand, before a, a sinner can even approach God, they must have belief in their heart. I hear it all the time. Well, whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You go look at what that word actually means. It doesn't mean what you think it means. And Paul says in that text that how can you call on whom you've not believed? Believing comes first. And once you've believed, you're already saved. Therefore, you have access to call on the Lord. So there's a context there to consider. A person must be born again, and saying some sinner's prayer does no such thing of giving us the new birth. Now, understand, some people may pray as an expression of their new birth, and after they have been saved, give thanks to God. Praise God for that. And this doesn't mean that if you prayed at the moment of your conversion that it didn't work. You understand that God saves us in spite of ourselves, in spite of uh, what we think is going on. You know, one of of the things that I wrestled with for a long time was assurance of salvation. It's because I was told to say the sinner's prayer. Just ask Jesus into your heart. That's all you have to do. Right? It's common terminology. But at seven years old, I was under heavy conviction. Knew I needed to be saved. God birthed faith in my heart there in my living room at that at my couch. I got on my knees, said, "Lord, save me." I said, I asked the Lord into my heart. But going down the line, I really questioned my salvation. Well, did I say it right? Was I sincere enough? Only as I grew to study the Bible, I realized my prayer had nothing to do with it at all. God gave me faith, and I believed on him. But here's the danger, and I don't mean to get on this rabbit trail. The danger is that some people want so earnestly for someone to be saved, that they tell them to do this, and if they do this, and they tell them they're saved, and they really weren't born again, and gives them a false assurance. This all dives into the reality that that prayer belongs to the people of God. So by this faith that we now have through the new birth, we've been given access to God. And so this is the foundation. It is in Christ and it is by faith that we access and approach God. This is about genuine faith in the right person. and What he's done. And that is Christ and his blood. Hebrews 10. Another reference for us. Hebrews 10. Look with me at verse 19 through verse 23 for a moment. Hebrews 10. Now notice what he says here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Jesus. You see, that's where the confidence lies. It's by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he is. Who promised is faithful. You see the two elements here. By the blood, hold firm to our faith. By the blood, hold firm to our faith. How can we enter? Only by the blood of Jesus. What must we hold fast? The confession of our faith. Faith in Christ is the central point. Because without faith, there is no true access to the Lord. I think it's important to note this, that some may outwardly profess faith while not inwardly possessing it. There must be an inward possession of faith in Christ if our confession is to be true. Faith is what leads us to the throne of grace. Notice with the number two tonight. One we see that believers have access to God, but notice believers have acceptance before God. We are accepted before him in Christ. And this is all because of Jesus. All of this centers around Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. But I'll point out what, what this author says in Hebrews 4. As we come to verse 15. I want you to see, firstly, that Jesus identifies with his people. Jesus identifies with his people, and we are identified in him. Our identity is in Christ. So many people struggle with identity today. don't even know if they're a boy or a girl or whatever. I want to understand something. Your identity is in who God made you, and when you're a Christian, your identity is in Christ. That's who you're identified in. But just think about the fact that Jesus identifies with us in a sense that he understands us. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus identifies with us. How could Jesus identify with us mortal humans? Because Jesus himself took on human flesh. This is the glorious mystery of the gospel. It's that God has become a man. Thereby being two natures, in one person. Theologians call that the hypostatic union. It's two natures and one glorious person. Truly God, truly man. And Jesus, this is what he is. This is essential to the gospel and Christ's redemptive work. We read of it in various places, but one of my favorite passages communicating this truth is John 1. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who is this capital W Word? It's Jesus. He's eternally existed. He is God just as much as the Father is God, just as much as the Spirit is God. And what it says of this eternal word in verse 14 is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I read a text like that and I just have to ponder on it a little bit. Think about it. Digest it. Take it in. The eternal word, the second person of the triune God, literally became flesh and walked upon this earth. He became us, except for the fallen nature that we have in Adam. And because of that, our text says, notice what it says in our text, he's not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This drives home how Jesus identifies with us. He can personally sympathize with us on a human level. And this this means a lot to me. He's not some cold, distant God that doesn't understand us. Has no connection with his people. He is intimately connected with his people. And he understands what they are experiencing in life. Now, some things in life I can sympathize with. Things that we have experienced, we can sympathize with, can't we? I can sympathize with someone who's had a bad car wreck. I've had two of them fell asleep once, don't recommend it. I can sympathize with those people. I can sympathize with someone who has lost their parent. I can sympathize with someone who's gone through sicknesses. You can sympathize with other people in other ways too. The Hebrew writer saying is that Christ can sympathize with his people because he lived a genuine human life. Would you like a Savior who cannot and does not relate to you in your life at all? This is what makes Jesus so great. He knows us. He knows us. Jesus, being our high priest that lived in this world, he understands our life and he can sympathize with us because he genuinely experienced what it means to be human. If you look at Hebrews 2 for a moment. Hebrews 2. Told you we're jumping in Hebrews a little bit. Look at verse 16 through 18. Hebrews 2, 16 through 18. Notice what it says. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us who are in Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when when tempted, he is able he is able to help those who are being tempted. You notice what it says of Jesus? Notice that he, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to. This is part of God's plan. He had to take on flesh. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that, this verse says, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. You understand that? The humanity of Jesus was absolutely necessary for his high priestly work for you right now. That's how vital his humanity was. I'm thankful for that. Now, included in his humanity is not only being able to sympathize with his people, understand them, and know what they're going through, but ultimately it was to save his people from their sins. Now, the only way the true eternal redemption could be secured was through the incarnation of, as, of, of Christ as the God man, because in his humanity, he would give his human life in bloodshed to die. He had to have a physical body pumping blood through his veins in order to give that body and that blood to satisfy God's demand for us. He, 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 he had to have this, it wasn't optional. He had to. It was a necessity for Christ to take on human flesh so that he might save us. Now, Paul makes this point clear in Philippians. Philippians, such a, uh, this passage, chapter 2, verse 7 through 8, so rich and deep as to the humility and humiliation of Christ. But notice what he says of Christ in Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But he emptied himself. This is Jesus. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That is the entire point of him taking on humanity. You see, the high priestly work includes not only sympathizing with us and the fact that he understands our human experience, but also... That he and his humanity would die for us. That is the chief purpose. It is to atone for us. And so when we think about Christ and all of his life, all the way to his death, he, knew what it, he knows what it means to be human. He experienced pain. Any of us experienced pain? Absolutely. He experienced hunger. Anybody, any of us experience hunger? We have. We're good to go now, right? Thanks to Bob and Sandy. But he he knew what it was to experience hunger, thirst, mistreatment, poverty, and ultimately death itself. We must never think that Christ doesn't understand our trials and troubles and temptations. He actually does. He knows what it is to suffer, to be tempted, and to face the grave, something we all tend to fear. He knows what it's like to know that death awaits his future. All of this is woven and do his redemptive work as a man. And because of this, he has brought us into a state in which we are accepted and blessed before the Father. And this is what Paul said in Ephesians 1.6. When we came through that glorious paragraph, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, or he has made us accepted in the beloved. There's another way to put that. To be blessed in the beloved is to be accepted. It's to be a recipient of God's favor in christ that is a glorious position for us as christians and as a believer priest that is who you are but notice with me letter b also and tied to this not only do we see that jesus identifies with his people and brings us into acceptance before god by his atonement he overcame sin for his people now coming to the throne room of god is only possible because jesus was absolutely sinless It's not enough that he was just merely human. He had to be a perfect human, a sinless human. And because he is God in humanity, God in human flesh, he was perfect in his humanity. Now, notice notice what the text says here in Hebrews 4. It says of Jesus, he was in every respect, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's yet another remarkable truth about Christ, yet without sin. He has been tempted every way we have, yet without sin. So you know what this means. He understands genuine temptation while not, not, while not experiencing sin in any form, internally or externally. Now, you remember how Jesus, when he attempted, it's in there for a reason, to show his temptation. Matthew 4, Luke's gospel, Mark's gospel also brings these out you remember how worn down Jesus was after his temptation with Satan? That Satan himself has come to tempt Christ. Now you understand, Satan is not omnipresent. A lot of times when we say, well, the devil tempted me, we're referring to some of his forces of darkness. Who knows if we've encountered the Satan himself, how, much, how, how powerful his force of darkness is. The Satan himself comes to the Son of God, To tempt him in his physical weakness. Having not eaten, having fasted. He was so worn down after that temptation. After overcoming that temptation. We find in the scriptures that he's renewed and strengthened by the angels. Matthew 4.11, the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. See, through that temptation, he was worn down physically. Mentally and spiritually. He knows what that's like. And yet he was triumphant. And would always be triumphant through his whole life. His sinlessness proved him to be the son of the living God. And also allowed him to take sin's judgment on himself. Because that's what was demanded. Paul said he who knew no sin became sin for who? For us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Only a sinless Savior is a real Savior at all. Now here's where this ties into our coming to the throne room of grace and him overcoming sin. Since Jesus is our sinless high priest, we can have forgiveness when we repent and confess Confess after having sinned in our own Christian life. Because from the day we're saved, understand you've been made righteous before God, but you're still in a flesh that's fallen, it's weak, and you will still sin in your Christian life. God's made provision for that, not to give you a license to go on sinning, but to make provision for you to continue and abide in fellowship with God, even in your Christian life when you fail. 1 John 1, I want to go to a different book for this. 1 John 1, verse 8, and look at through chapter 2, verse 2. We touched on this a little bit Sunday. Walking in the light, he gives instruction about that. But notice in verse 8, he says, If we have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There's not any of us Christians who think, Well, you know what, I'm a Christian, I just don't sin anymore. Well, John says, If you say that, you're lying. You're lying. But here's what he gives. I'm so thankful, for verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many of us have claimed that verse over and over and over? If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his words not in us. But understand, this all connects. Look at verse chapter 2. My little children, I'm I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal, right? Don't sin. Don't live in sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a key word here. And it's that word advocate. Advocate. What's an advocate in verse 1? An advocate is one who appears in another's behalf. He stands on our behalf. So you understand that when we come to God in our confession of sin, God honors our confession and repentance on behalf of the one who stands for us, Jesus the righteous. Jesus the righteous. And because he is the righteous one who has atoned for us, he's the propitiation for our sins. God is bound to his own legal obligation of what Christ has done on the cross to forgive us and cleanse us. What a contrast that is when we know that Satan, what what does the Bible tell us about Satan, who he is to us? He is the accuser of who? The brothers. He's the accuser. Brings accusation. You did this, and you are guilty of this. Jesus, he's the advocate. We come to God. Because he's our propitiation, we know that we have cleansing. Because Christ has already paid, even for those sins I will commit in my Christian life with his own blood, past, present, and future. He's already satisfied God's demand of eternal justice for our sins. And so with our advocate, We we have acceptance before God and we have forgiveness before God. So that brings me to number three tonight. We look at this last verse. We see that believers have access to God in Christ as our high priest. We see we have acceptance before God with what he's done for us. Verse 16, I want you to see that believers have assurance with God as believer priests. Two things here that are really applicable for us. Verse 16, notice he says, let us then come, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's the first thing, we're called to come with confidence. Come to the throne of grace with confidence or boldness if you would. Now, when we think about who God is, it would seem that maybe we ought only to approach him timidly, fearfully, and there is some truth to that in 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 a certain category. Psalm 8, 3 through 4, David said this way, When I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When you consider how vast and infinite God is, who are we that we should approach him at all? Consider his infinitude of character and nature. All of creation bows before its creator. All of mankind should fear him with great terror. But for the believer, the Hebrew writer says, go to him with confidence. Confidence. See, God has allowed us into his presence through prayer because of his son with confidence. But understand that confidence is not arrogance either. We shouldn't confuse those two. Coming to God confidently means that we come with full assurance of our position in Christ. I'm confident that God will hear me based on his word and who I am in Christ. You know, Paul, speaking of our, bold, of our position in Christ, he wrote in Ephesians 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Same principle being written here in Hebrews. Boldness, confidence, access, faith. We have boldness and confidence to pray and come before the throne of grace. You see, when one's confidence is lacking, person tends to maybe avoid that particular thing. Growing up many times playing basketball and, you know, little league and stuff, I had real bad confidence issues. I thought, man, I don't know, I can't dribble good enough. I can't shoot good enough or I can't pass good enough. And so sometimes in the game, I just try to avoid getting the ball. (laughs) That's the way to do it. I I missed out on a lot of good plays because I lacked confidence. I thought, well, I just can't do it. You know, Christians miss out on a lot of great things in the Christian life because they just lack confidence in who they are in Christ. You understand that you, Christian, need to go to God in prayer confidently, boldly because of who you are in Christ. Don't think that you have to be some eloquent prayer person. You've got to say it all right and do things just perfectly. Just go to him humbly with confidence knowing who you are. He's your Father, that He hears you. Notice also, letter B, we're called not only to come to Him confidently, we're called to come seeking mercy. We've touched on this already, but we remember that we come in confidence, but we also ought to always be mindful of who we are and that we daily need His mercy. The writer says this, come to Him to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy. Do we need mercy as believers? Even though we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and made new, our flesh remains, and daily, daily we need mercy. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is all about. We're always in need of this mercy, and we must come to Him seeking such. And when you come to God seeking mercy, you ought to genuinely be broken over your sins. You ought not to just go through a routine, okay, I sinned today, Lord, forgive me these sins. You ought to pinpoint your sin and recognize what it is and come to Him. Lord, I have sinned in this manner. Please have mercy and forgive me of this. The good news is the psalmist said in Psalm 103, I won't go there for time, but he says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he done what? Removed our transgressions from us. He removes them, friend. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, You cannot sin as much as God can forgive. Think about that. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. We have great assurance that the God of mercy grants forgiveness to his people as we come to him seeking such. But we ought to come to him with a broken and contrite heart, humbly seeking that forgiveness and mercy. Letter C, we're called to come seeking grace. Come seeking grace. Notice the last statement. He says, "And we come to the throne of grace to seek mercy, but also to find grace to help in time of need. How many of us have ever been in a time of need? Maybe even now we're in a time of need. What should you do in time of need? Go to the throne of grace for his grace. Because you can. And he tells you to do that. Even if you feel you cannot come because your heart's too overwhelmed, remember that God knows all and still wants you to come. Often we're in such need, we don't know exactly how to express it to God. John Bunyan rightly said, in prayer, it's better to have heart, have a heart without words than words without a heart. You don't have to have all your words right. Just pour your heart to him. Pour your heart to him. God knows what you're in need of, but bring it to him. You see, it is with God that we find grace to help in time of need. And friend, in all of our times of need, it is grace that will ultimately give us the strength to get through. Always going to be grace. Paul understood this, and last verse I'll quote to you. His own time of need. You remember 2 Corinthians 12, this thorn in the flesh he talks about. He asked the Lord three times, Take it away. All every time God said no. He didn't take it away. But instead he gave him this answer. And this is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12 9. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And often in our weakness, we go to God for grace, His grace is what strengthens us. But it's through our weakness that strength really comes through, because it's all of God. This is a wonderful thing that's available for us, so we shouldn't neglect the fact that we have this great opportunity In time of need to seek God for his grace. And he wants us to come to him seeking that grace. So we look at this overall. We see the glory of what it is. The privilege of what it is to be a believer priest. That you as a believer priest. You can go directly to the throne of grace. Because of Christ. Because of faith that he's given you to begin with. You can find grace to help in time of need. Mercy. All of this. So we come confidently seeking mercy and grace, and this should be a daily practice for every single one of us believers. And I pray it is. I pray that it's a daily practice for us. It's also a church practice for us. That's why we gather to take requests and have prayer uh, on Wednesday nights. And so that's what we're going to do now. And uh, so I pray this has encouraged us and challenged us in in the, of, um, in the matter of our prayer life and understanding the the privilege of being a believer priest.